I'm going to read our passage for this morning, the parable of the sower. It comes from Matthew 9, 1 through 3, sorry, Matthew 13, 1 through 9. That's right. Okay. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Thank you, Alex, for your poem and sharing that with us. We all have stories, important stories, and part of the privilege of being a church, a community, is we get to know each other's stories, and that means weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice, and we get to do a little bit of both this morning. Well, Again, my name is James Walden. I'm one of the elders here at Riverside Community Church, if we've not met. Last week, uh, our elder, Timothy Bunch, one of our other elders, uh, started our new series on the parables of the kingdom. And we'll be in that series this summer and again next summer, and we'll look at all the major parables of Jesus between those two series before we start back into a, a, a book of the Bible in the fall. In August, we'll start just to give you a heads up where we're going, to the book of Esther. Uh, But for now, we will be looking at Jesus' kingdom parables. And so if you haven't already turned there to Matthew 13, please do so with me. Um, You know, they say Jesus didn't invent parables, although I suppose as he through whom all things were made, he did. Uh, but he perfected them. It's striking that Jesus taught so regularly in parables, but none of his apostles did. One commentator suggested he perfected the art so much, the rest knew they would just ruin it. And so parables were were something of a hallmark of Jesus' ministry, but they were not unique to him. In fact, in a lot of Jewish literature in the ancient world, parables is a common form of teaching. And I wanted to share with you one Jewish parable that comes from the Babylonian Talmud. It's about a rabbi named Joshua bar Levi. And Joshua bar Levi is at the tomb of another famous second century rabbi named Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, or Rashbi for short. This is a very famous tomb. In fact, if you all might remember last year, in April 30th of 2021, there was I think one of the most uh, deadliest civil events, non-war related, in in modern Israel, at Rashbi's tomb. The Jews were there for a pilgrimage and the crowds were so swollen that there was a crushing at the gate of 45 souls. Do you remember that? That was this gate, that was this tomb, this pilgrimage. Well, 
Well, Rabbi Joshua is praying at Rashbi's tomb, and who should be- appear before him but Elijah the prophet? And immediately Joshua asks Elijah a few questions. One of his questions is, when will Messiah come? And uh, Elijah, in, in, in a wonderfully Jewish answer, says, why don't you ask him himself? And he says, well, where is he? And Elijah says, he's sitting at the city gate. Well, the city gate's a very crowded place. So he says, well, how would I recognize him? He says, Elijah says, he's sitting among the wretched lepers. And he is the one untying and rebandaging his wound one at a time. All the other lepers bind and rebind their wounds all at once. But Messiah will be binding his wounds one at a time so that if his time to appear comes, he can leave at a moment's notice. So Joshua goes to the city gate and he finds Messiah binding his wounds. And he approaches and says, Peace be upon you, master and teacher. And Messiah responds, Peace be upon you, son of Levi. Joshua asks, Messiah, when will you come? And Messiah answered, Today. Well, Joshua goes back to Rashbi's tomb, and there's Elijah, and Eliza asks, So what did he say? And Joshua says, Well, he lied. He told me he was going to come today, but he hasn't come today. And Elijah corrected him and said, this is what he said, today, if you hear my voice, citing Psalm 95, if today you hear his voice. Now, that's a Jewish parable, strikingly similar to the Gospels in some ways, but with this one difference. The Messiah has in fact come, and he's still hanging with the lepers. He wasn't waiting to come, hidden among the lepers. He came among the lepers. And he's still among the leper colonies, among the wretched, among the poor, among the outcasts, the marginalized. And he speaks if we hear his voice. If we have eyes to see him, there he is. So the question of our text, and the question of this Jewish parable is this, will we hear? With that said, let me pray that God would give us ears to hear as we consider Jesus' parable. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in many different ways throughout the ages, but in these last days, you have revealed yourself in the Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have spoken to us in both parables and in plain interpretation that we might know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Lord, give us ears now to hear and eyes to see and make our hearts alive. Through your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The question is, why would Jesus be teaching the crowds here in riddles? 
Parables both reveal but also conceal. They're confusing at times. They require interpretation. Why would Jesus be keeping secrets by speaking in veiled speech? Well, that's exactly the question the disciples had. So after he gives this parable that Alex just read for us, the disciples come to him, presumably while he's on the boat, and sort of privately ask him this question. It's on the screen, verses 10 and following. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has ears to hear, more will be given. But to the one who does not have eyes to see, even what little he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus goes on, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with them and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. We'll pause here. What Jesus is saying is, I speak to them in parables not because I want to put them in the dark, but because they're already in the dark. And it is a kind of judgment. They are in the dark because they choose to be. They choose to shut their eyes and shut their ears. It is a morally culpable blindness. This is most clearly seen in Matthew's Gospel as he's been leading us up to this point by demonstrating the willful blindness of Israel, in particular, Israel's leadership. Right up to this point, Jesus has been performing miracle after miracle, mighty work after mighty work, and the religious leadership's question is, when are you going to show us a sign that we might believe? And when Jesus does to perform these signs, even though the crowds are wowed by them, if still sitting on the fence, they're wowed by them and ask questions like, has anything like this ever been done in Israel? Could this be the son of David? Twice Matthew records the Pharisees and the scribes responding this way, no, this is not the hand of God. It is the hand of the devil. He casts out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebul. In other words, the religious leadership, the trained theologians of the day, those who understood God, saw what was good in Jesus and called it evil. That is profound moral confusion, profound spiritual blindness. And Jesus says, to them I will speak in parables. Not only that, they didn't even understand the revelation they'd already been given. They were students of Moses and the prophets, but profoundly misunderstood Moses. Jesus repeatedly has to say to them, 
Have you not read, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire integrity and justice, not mere ceremony. You have missed the point of Moses. You have, confound, you have, conf, you have confused the law and the prophets. And G, indeed, Jesus says, your righteousness better not be like the religious experts. For their religiosity is window dressing. It is play-acting, he called it. It is theatrical. They pray to be heard. They give to the poor to be seen. They fast so you will feel sorry for them. Their religion is useless. Worse than that, he says, to the, after they ask for a sign. <laughs> he says, how can you with bad hearts produce good fruit? You can't. The heart is rotten. And you're culpable for that. Your hearts are dull. And so, Jesus turns to his disciples and says this. He continues in verse 16. Contrast that, the leadership and the crowds under, the leader, under that leadership. He says, but blessed are your eyes. For they see in your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Moses and the prophets long to see this, and they didn't get to see what you get to see and to hear what you are privileged to hear. Three times in chapter 12, Jesus says something better than some Old Testament great character or figure is here. Something better than Solomon is here. Something better than Jonah is here. And this is most remarkable. Something better than the temple, the very centerpiece of ancient Judaism. Something better than the temple is here. And yet, those who ought to know better did not see it. In fact, going back to verse 1 of chapter 13 there, whenever the, a gospel writer or any narrator gives you a timestamp, that's important to connecting it to the, to the narrative that surrounds it. Look in verse 1, that same day. Well, what's the same day? We'll jump up to the paragraph before it. Verse 46 of chapter 12. While he was still speaking. So this is if you have your Bibles open in chapter 12, verse 46. As while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. We'll return to that. Well, what was he speaking that he got interrupted with by his mother and brothers? Verses 38 through 45, which is where the scribes and Pharisees say, teacher, give us a sign. And Jesus has this whole teaching. So all of this, this parable is connected to what's happening with his family and was connected to the religious leadership, but not just to the religious leaders, but those they lead. Look at verse 45 of chapter 12. Jesus here in the middle of his kind of a parable regarding an exorcism, a casting out of a demon. He says, Then the evil spirit goes and brings with it 
seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they will enter and dwell that place, this person who had the first demon cast out, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. L listen to what he says. So also it will be with this evil generation. It is tragic and sad that the, the cities where Jesus most performed his miracles were the cities that rejected him. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus denounces all these cities in which Matthew says Jesus had performed most of his mighty deeds. And they rejected him. They saw, but they did not see. They heard, but they did not hear. And so Jesus gives this terrifying image. Here the Son of Man comes to clean house in Israel, but Israel's condition will be worse for having rejected me. It'll be worse because you did not have eyes to see or ears to hear. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says, I would have gathered you like a mother hen does her checks under her wing, but you would not have it. And this is heartbreaking. But not just the cities where Jesus most performed his miracles, where he cast demons out of men that were monsters that terrified a city. And as soon as he did that, they were like, whoa, get out of here. They treat Jesus like the monster. Even his own family is confused about him. Verse 46, as we saw, while he was still speaking to the people, this very parable about the exorcism, his mother and brother arrive. Why are they there? Well, Matthew just suggests why they're there. But the Gospel of Mark makes it explicit. Right before this event, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is working so hard at ministry, he's so busy, he doesn't even stop to eat. And his own family says this, he has lost his mind. So the religious leadership says he's demon-possessed. And his own family says he's crazy. They see, but they do not see. They hear, but they do not hear. Even John the Baptist, the forerunner of the kingdom of God, is confused. And in chapter 11, the, the, the chapter prior to chapter 12 here, John sends message to Jesus and says, are you the one or are we waiting for someone else? Even John is confused. And I want you to turn there with me to, in your Bibles to Matthew 11. It's in verse 2 he sends envoys to Jesus to ask this, but after Jesus gives a teaching about who John is and his greatness, he has a remarkable statement in verse 25. Just turn there with me. In Matthew 25, I want to just read a few verses here. At that time, 11.25, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. After he's denounced, not only, not only has he dealt with, with John's doubt, but then he's dealt with the cities that saw his miracles and rejected him. And he denounces those in verses 20-24. This is his response to all of this. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You have hidden these things from those who ought to know better but are prideful, who are self-reliant in their wisdom and understanding. 
and you reveal them to what? Little children. Those who don't know, those who are ignorant, those who are confused, those who know that they don't know. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So now we go back to chapter 13, and we better understand what Jesus is doing here when he says, not to them, but to you it has been given, you disciples of mine, to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. I have chosen to reveal them to you. But we shouldn't think that this means Jesus is indifferent or worse, hateful toward either his family, who will come to believe, or the crowds, some of whom will come to believe. In fact, look what Jesus goes on to say in chapter 11 there. Look, after he says that mysterious statement, you've chosen to hide these things from the wise and learned, but revealed them to children. Look what Jesus says in verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. All. Likewise, though the crowds by and large seem to reject Jesus, they're impressed with his signs, but they do not believe. Jesus nevertheless looks at the crowds in chapter 9, and it says this, He had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has compassion on us in our doubt, in our confusion, in our blindness, in our deafness. And he invites us to come and find rest if we would hear his invitation. In fact, the parable of the sower portrays this. The farmer is just sort of, you notice, indiscriminately broadcasting the seed. It's just sort of wherever, everywhere. It goes on the road. It goes on stony soil. It goes in good soil. It goes in soil that's weeded with thorns. Like, he just indiscriminately scatters the word. It's for all, for any who would hear. And yet, sadly, though we might think there's only two responses to the mysterious seed, there's in fact a number of ways that we can hear without hearing. The difference is how it's heard. The word heard or hear is used 15 times in our passage. Jesus is clearly very concerned what and how do we hear? So let's take a look. Let's listen then. Chapter 13, picking up where we left off, verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. It's been said that Satan's biggest weapon is the lie. And I think that's true. But when the lie will not prevail, his second biggest we weapon is to distract us from the truth. And this is exactly what Jesus describes here. The evil one, Satan, snatches the truth away from our attention where we stop attending to its presence, its voice. We hear it, but as they say, it's in one ear and out the other. 
Satan's biggest weapons of distraction, his weapon, weapons of mass distraction, are, are not always bad things. Sometimes we think, well, it's evil he's distracting us with. He's distracting us with indulgence, self-indulgence, or gluttony, or lust. Yes, yes, but more often he distracts us with good things, with good things. Do you remember the story of Mary and Martha? It's in Luke's Gospel where Mary and Martha are hosting Jesus, and he's there teaching, and Martha's busying herself doing the work of hosting. She's practicing hospitality. It's a good thing. And then she sees Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. What is she doing? She's listening. She's hearing the Word. And Martha says, tell my sister to help me. (laughs) And Jesus says, listen, Mary's chosen what's good. That's not going to be taken from her. We likewise are distracted by many, many good things from the best thing, which is to listen. Let me just pick one example, our smartphones, right? I just want us to consider for a moment how how many moments has your smartphone, for all the good it's brought you, how many moments of connection, opportunities for intimacy, for going a little step further in a relationship with a friend or family, how many moments have you been robbed by the distractions of a smartphone? How many moments for reflection, for growth and wisdom? Because I have to do the Wordle of the day. (laughs) I'm, I'm totally addicted to Wordle, so, right. How many time opportunities to be deeper connected to God have we forfeited? Again, there's no, smartphones aren't evil in and of themselves, but Satan uses them powerfully to distract us. Well, he goes on, verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That's a great response. Yet he has no root within himself, and he endures for a little while. When tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. You know, the word fall away there is scandalized. It's the same root we get that word. It's to be tripped up by, not just falling away passively. It's to be tripped up. It's the same word that Jesus uses actually in response to John the Baptist's question. Are you the one, or are we waiting for another? Because you might remember, John's the forerunner of the kingdom of heaven who's announced it's at hand. He's announced the presence of Messiah. He's directed his disciples to follow Jesus instead of him now. And yet, where's John? He's in prison, in Herod's prison, this third-rate king. And so he's like, are you the, the kingdom? Are you the king? Because this doesn't look like the kingdom of God to me. Suffering causes us to get tripped up. And Jesus says this in response, Blessed is he who is not tripped up by me, who does not fall away on account of me. Because when suffering comes, it's easy for us to get tripped up on Jesus, to be ensnared in that suffering, which is what happens to these seeds. This is a strange kingdom that Jesus brings. It's the sovereign rule of God, and yet it's vulnerable 
to all manners of suffering. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter 11, listen to what Jesus says about this kingdom. This is fascinating. It's the kingdom of God. And yet, Jesus says this, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence from violent men who seize it. The word seize is the same word that's used of the evil one seizing the word out of our hearts. Just like John the Baptist was seized and thrown in prison. So, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be violated, manipulated, oppressed. It will suffer violence. So, John, don't be stripped up. This is how it goes. This is the way. Like Jay will preach to us two weeks ago, it's through many trials and tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. This isn't as though, to quote the Apostle Peter, something strange is happening when sufferings come. This is the way. This is the path of the kingdom. The hearts of mere mortals can, as John Calvin put it, destroy the force of the heavenly doctrine. How can that be? How can mere men do violence to God's reign? And yet, so it is. What's scattered so liberally is the fragile and eminently overlookable seed. Yet this seed is not unproductive. It's immensely productive even while it suffers, especially as it suffers violence. It proves to be an unstoppable and ultimately victorious work, quietly bringing justice to victory. He will not raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he brings justice to victory. That's what Matthew quotes from Isaiah. This fragile seed is blooming within us who believe, who endure hard things. The meek Savior who suffered even violence from the hands of others calls His disciples to that same meekness and suffering. It's funny, in chapter 10 of Matthew, Jesus gives authority to His disciples over the demonic realms and over diseases. He gives them kingdom authority. And then He says this to them, Behold, I send you as sheep among the wolves. You're going to suffer violence. And in fact, he goes on to say to them, if they called the master of the household Beelzebul, prince of demons, what will they call you? You too must enter into my sufferings. What, what we're watching in, uh, in Ukraine right now, in this demonic violence brought against the Ukrainian people and against the Ukrainian church, many congregations that were once thriving houses of worship are literally scattered to the wind. Something strange isn't happening. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence from violent men. And yet the gates of death will not prevail over his church, not even the church in Ukraine. Amen?
This is the way. This is how it comes. I love what Martin Luther said. Listen to this. It's almost as if he was reflecting on this parable. Martin Luther wrote this, As soon as God's word takes root and grows in you, if the devil can't keep you from being distracted from it, he says this, The devil will harass you and will make a real theologian out of you, a real student of God's word. And by his assaults, he will teach you to run back to the word over and over again. I myself, if, I may, if you may permit me, mere mouse dirt. I don't know what that is exactly. I guess he's being very humble there. I'm just mere mouse dirt, if you will permit me to say this. I'm very indebted to my persecutors. What? Through the devil's raging, they have beaten, oppressed, and distressed me so much. That is to say, they have made a fairly good theologian out of me. I have now been better attuned to the Word of God, and I'm grateful. He goes on to say this. I love this. It is not understanding. It is not reading. It is not in your theologizing. No, but in living. No, not living. Dying. That you become a real theologian. A real student of the Word of God. So the question is this. Not is there trouble in your life. Of course there is. But how do you presently experience it? Is it tripping you up over Jesus? Or is it pressing you into Jesus? The third seed is the seed among thorns. Verse 22 on the screen. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Look, the soil, which is otherwise good here, has been taken up by other roots. There's only so much one life can hold. And so Jesus is saying this, if our lives are so preoccupied with anxieties, it will choke out the presence of God's Word and our ability to attend to God's Word in our life. So the question is, what roots of anxiety in our hearts are keeping us from attending to that word. We can't hold, we can't really be attentive to both those overwhelming anxieties that we all have and the word of God at the same time. That was, by the way, a perfect illustration. <laughs> it's, thank you. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard being little. And in the same way, it's hard for us to, to attend in the midst of our, our discomfort and our anxiety. So how do we root that out? And not just anxiety. Jesus doesn't mention the anxieties of this age. There's a lot of, we live, if we live in an age of distraction, <laughs> even more so we live in an age of anxiety. Do we not? We are an anxious people. So how do we contend with that? How do we account for that reality and respond? But we also are, I think, succumb to the second thing Jesus mentions here, and that's the deceitfulness of wealth, meaning it sells us a bill of goods and we keep buying it over and over again. We are trained consumers. You know what that means? That means we know the ad on TV is lying to us, but we buy it anyway, right? The deceitfulness of riches, we are totally intoxicated by it. But to quote Biggie Smalls, <laughs> mo money, mo problems. That's the truth. 
Biggie Small said it because he knew it experientially. How many of in this room believe that lie, though? That if I just had, my, my life would be better if I had more money. We all believe that, don't we? Like, it would be better. Now, there is a, book, a verse in the Bible that says money is the solution to every problem. But the point is that though money is practically helpful, it can never bring joy. It can never bring life. It's in Ecclesiastes 10, if you're looking, by the way. Where's that verse? <laughs> Now, I was pulling, I, I spent a lot of time in my yard on Saturdays pulling weeds. You guys ever heard that old blues song, if it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have no luck at all? That's what I sing when I pull the weeds. If it wasn't for weeds, I wouldn't have no yard at all. So I'm just pulling weed after weed after weed. And some weeds come easily. It's just like sins in our life. They, they come up pretty easily, but others are deep-rooted, and you got to dig. The frustrating thing about these weeds is I pull them, and I come back next week, and they're there again. I kid you not, yesterday I ran into a soil scientist. I'm not joking. I'm not making this up. His name was Buzz. So very memorable guy. Buzz was awesome. But Buzz told me all about soil, and it was fascinating. And listen, what he, this is one of the things he said. He said, you know, weeds grow because the soil isn't healthy. If you have healthy soil, you won't have weeds. Because you look at an old forest floor, there's no weeds on that thing because the soil is so rich. Weeds grow up in poor soil. How do we change the weeds that sprout in our hearts and shuck out the Word? We do have to attend the quality of our hearts. And we don't do that just individually. I'm just out there picking weeds by myself. That's not how the Christian life is lived or fought. There is a healthy ecosystem, he explained to me, that happens in soil where different plants underground create this ecosystem, this symbiotic, where each plant contributes its own unique nutrients and microbes that creates this rich, rich soil. And you need all different kinds of plants working together in unison to create that. And that's true for you and me. The spiritual survey Regina mentioned, we can throw that back up on the screen. That's not just so we can get a pulse on the church to know how bad things are. The, that, the point of that is we want to know what is the health of our ecosystem because we're in it together. And how can we work together to produce a healthier ecosystem, produce healthier hearts? So I want to encourage you guys to, take, to fill that out here in the next couple of weeks or today even. Well, I'm running out of time, so my last point here is hearing with understanding the final the final seed, verse 23. As for the seed sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and finally, finally understands it. In Luke's gospel, he says, holds it fast with an honest and good heart. He indeed bears fruit, yields in one case a hundredfold, and another sixteen, and another thirty. This is the person who attends God's word. Or how the half-brother of Jesus put it, James, he humbly receives the word implanted that can save his soul. And so this is important to understand. We often think of the parable of the sowers as like that one time you heard the gospel and you received it. He's not talking about a one-and-done one response. You walked it out, we were baptized, we're good to go. He's talking about a lifetime of attending to that seed, of humbly receiving the word implanted 
which is able to save us. So are we keep on seeing it, keep on hearing it, holding fast with good and honest hearts? And here's the joy. Although it didn't look real good up to this point, look like three-fourths of your seed is lost. He says the seed in the good soil produces hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. It's way more productive than the original seed. The Word of God goes out and accomplishes its purpose. And it will in your life as you see it and hear it, as you attend to God's Word in your life, it will bear fruit. This is encouraging. It will bear way more fruit than we could ever bear in our own life, and our own strength, if we just humbly would receive it, attend to it, hear it, obey it. It will yield a hundredfold. Indeed, Revelation says the, the, the gospel produces a number of souls that are beyond counting is how fruitful it is. That's encouraging for those of us who have received and are considering and, and responding to that word. But this is also a warning. God's word never returns void, even when the seed is rejected one year out the other or responds in shallow soil or is choked out. The word still accomplishes its purpose. And in that case, it's judgment against blind eyes and deaf ears. But I want to encourage you with this. If you have, well, your heart of seeing and your heart of hearing, I want to remind you what Jesus feels toward you. And it's not despising you as a member of the fickle crowd. He has compassion on you. And I want you to hear what he says to you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. With that said, I'd like you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and listen to the parable one last time. And hear the voice of Jesus, our Savior. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear.